Streaming from Abby Cat Recording Studio in Chicago. You are listening to Influence, a podcast where we explore what makes great music influential. Oh, mercy, mercy me. All things ain't what they used to be now. Where did all the blue skies go? Poison is the wind that blows from the north and south and All right, welcome to uh, an episode of the second season of Influenced. I'm Blake Sokoloff. I'm Robert Dean. And this this week we're doing the incomparable Marvin Gaye, one of the most iconic, probably soul musicians of all time. Truly our pleasure to be able to focus on Marvin Gaye today. Absolutely. And I mean, he was he was born Marvin Gaye Jr. in 1939 in Washington, D.C. His He kind of moved around a lot his whole life, so he was a little bit of everywhere. But yeah, he grew he grew up for the first probably 10 to 15 years of his life in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, yeah, in the in the projects, actually. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, they lived in a number of different neighborhoods, and his his family life was never the easiest for for Marvin. He had a very very tough relationship with especially his father, who would occasionally, once he was older, like from I guess like the ages of kind of seven, yeah, to like his his teenage years, his his father would pretty regularly like beat and abuse him and things like that so it was a very very heavy home life for marvin and he kind of would use music as kind of a way to escape and he started singing as early as like the the late 40s and early 50s and in grade school and high school and things like that he would join a lot of choirs and also singing in 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 church and Mm -hmm. things like that but a lot of with, his, uh, with his father actually, yeah. who, was, who was the minister of the church. Yeah, yeah, his father would usually be on piano or something right. like that. But but he more most seriously got into singing in in high school, and he started just like playing in some doo wop bands and things like that around just mm-hmm. like the the D.C. area, kind of inspired by a lot of the like music that like artists like Sam Cooke Definitely. were were putting out in the in the mid fifties and and late fifties. And I'm gonna play here just real quick a song from one of Sam Cooke's early 60s albums, but it is the song um, Don't Get Around Much Anymore off of the album My Kind of Blue. So here's Sam Cooke from 1961, one of Marvin's kind of earliest, earliest influences when he was very inspired by kind of that doo-wop sound by other artists like the Four Tops and things like that. But here's Sam Cooke's Don't Get Around Much Anymore. Miss that Saturday dance, but I heard they flooded the floor. I couldn't bear it without you. I don't get around much anymore. So I thought I'd visit the club, but I only got as far as the door. Someone would have asked me about you. I don't 
don't get around much anymore. Yeah, Sam Cooke uh, was an icon back then and uh, had that real crisp, clear, you know, kind of approach to his music. And a little tidbit is that Sam Cooke actually added an E to the end of his last name, yep. Cooke, which may have also influenced uh, Marvin uh, a few years later. Yeah, yeah, Marvin would, a few years later, add an add an, add an E to the end of his last name, Gay, partially to to kind of get a little bit away from his kind of father and yeah. just feeling like he was a little bit more his own own kind of man. Um, and actually kind of after some time in doo-wop groups and things like that in high school, Marvin actually ended up dropping out of high school mm-hmm. to join the Air Force, I think kind of again looking to just kind of get out mm. uh, from his, like his home life and everything like that. But he wasn't... He didn't do so well with just like menial labor and just like kind of having to do the same just generic random things every day and not actually seeing any real action or anything. So he ended up actually kind of faking his way out of the Air Force by, I don't know, I think it was, he was he like faked his mental illness. Yeah, he actually. faked some mental illness <laughs> to kind of get out of the get out of the Air Force and he was eventually discharged and kind of made his way back back home for a short time but then once he was back home he pretty quickly formed a um his first kind of real band which he he called the Marquis mm-hmm. with a couple people that he had just known from playing around in some of the doo-wop groups as a kid and they pretty quickly were kind of grafted into this other group by um Harvey Fouquet I believe is the is his mm-hmm. is his name or Fuqua Fuqua um Harvey Fuqua was kind of in this other kind of doo-wop band called the Moon Glows at the time, who were sort of a session backing group and things like that. And he, Harvey, kind of melded the Marquis into his own group and things like that. And they ended up actually getting some decent work with uh, the Chicago record label Chess Records, kind of recording some backups for artists on the label, like kind of most notably Chuck Berry. They did a number of sessions with kind of most notably on the Chuck Berry song Back in the USA from 1962, his album Chuck Berry Twist, which I'm going to play the song here in just a second. You can really hear like that kind of very doo-wop backing vocal style in the in the vocals on this album. And this this song features a young Marvin Gaye as part of the Marquise. So here is Back in the USA by Chuck Berry, which would actually end up going on to in, an, in about a decade or so be covered to a pretty great success by Linda Ronstadt, who we've covered in a previous podcast. But here is the 1962 Chuck Berry classic back in the USA featuring a young Marvin Gaye on backing vocals.
Yeah, Sam Cooke and and um, Chuck Berry, both big influences on Marvin Gaye in those early years. And and uh, the Marquis actually moved right here to Chicago, where we're sitting at Abbey yep. Cat Recording, uh, back in around 1959. Yep, they were doing a lot of work for the uh, Chicago label Chess Records, so they just they just figured it'd be easiest to be in the city. So they for for a number of years they actually did some work in that kind of Chess Records circle and eventually i think like the rest of the guys in the marquees just couldn't really benefit from being out of their kind of home territory and eventually the marquees did sort of break up around 1960 to 1961 mm-hmm. and so after that after kind of the breakup of that band marvin followed harvey to detroit right meandering around playing gigs in detroit he ended up actually playing a holiday party at, I believe, Barry Gordy's house. Yeah, exactly. And um, Barry Gordy, of course, the um, founder of the famous Motown Records. And I guess Barry just liked what he heard from Marvin. And Barry pretty quickly bought Harvey out of the little bit of a uh, contract that he had with with Marvin. So then Marvin was able to kind of mosey over to, to Motown. And he initially started out as kind of a session player for the for the label doing some backing vocals and some percussion and drumming on some tours and some songs from from artists like the Miracles and the Marvelettes. And he eventually did start to release some of his own solo music on the label starting in kind of the early 60s, like 61 to 63, kind of saw Marvin releasing a lot of his early music on the label. And one of his first songs to kind of start to get some play on a lot of the R&B and kind of what back and at the time, black radio stations were starting to kind of play this song, Stubborn Kind of Fellow, from the self titled That Stubborn Kind of Fellow album that Marvin put out in 1963. So I'm going to play just a quick bit of that song to kind of really show where Marvin was kind of at this early point in his career where he was kind of doubling as a, as a solo artist and also just a session player, kind of depending on wherever he could get get the money for for that week or that next couple of months. So here's Stubborn Kind of Fellow, one of the first songs to feature a solo Marvin Gaye that began to get kind of some traction around the music industry. That sounds great. And and you mentioned that uh, he was earning what he could yeah. uh, as a session musician. It was actually five bucks a week, which would yeah. turn out to be, uh, it's about 50 bucks a week right now. Yeah. So that puts it in perspective. He was doing what he had to do. Yep, definitely. And he sort of, he, he slowly started garnering some attention on kind of the, the R&B sort of radio stations. And I'm going to play here a song from 1965, which was for sort of one of his first kind of top 10 hits to start actually getting some higher chart positions, which sort of start to give Marvin a little bit more freedom just financially. And he didn't have to necessarily do too much session work and backing work after the um, 
kind of mid-60s. He actually ended up also doing a little bit of backing work for for someone who was another young, very young Motown artist, The um, at this point, the little Stevie Wonder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the last kind of tours that Marvin actually went on was actually a backing tour of little Stevie Wonder when he was still just like a kind of a child prodigy. Mm. Um, but he didn't really have to do much of that by the mid 60s as he did start to have some of his early sort of hits. So here is How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You from 1965, the self-titled song from that same album. So here is How Sweet It Is by Marvin Gaye. Well, that song became a, a huge breakout for uh, Marvin Gaye, number six in the U.S., and yep. actually got to in the top 50 in the U.K., so yep. he, he was getting a lot of attention at that time. Absolutely, and I mean, he one of the things I think that like you can even hear it in that song, well, that is that is kind of billed as a solo Marvin Gaye song, but that mm-hmm. female backing vocalist is almost just as loud as his voice in the mix, and I think in the early years of his career, he had he did have some kind of confidence issues and he was just like so he was more of an introverted kind of guy just yeah. generally so i think part of that might have been from playing as a side man for probably the first decade or so of his musical career but he he sort of ended up actually by the mid 60s latching on to kind of these duet albums that he would do with a few different artists like generally with a with a female artist his first duet album that had a fair amount of success was with the artist Kim Weston, who I'll play just a quick snippet of one of their first hits off their album Take Two. It's just the title track. It called it called It Takes Two. And he he got really into this kind of duet style where he could kind of be the front man, but also kind of have another front person on the song with him. And when he would play live, he would kind of bring in some other singers to kind of have almost kind of front the the show with him just because he kind of liked to just be a little bit, not the entire center of attention, just to kind of have a little bit of a back seat sometimes. So here's It Takes Two from the 1966 album of the same name, Take Two. Just take two. Just take two. Special treat. Two can make that single move. It's something really kind of sweet. Yeah, one can take a walk in the moonlight thinking that it's really nice. But two walk in the hand in hand is like adding just a pinch of spice. Yeah, it takes two, baby. It takes two, baby. Me and you. Yeah, and as we get further into this podcast and start talking about influences of Marvin Gaye, it's this duet period that I think 
just had an immeasurable amount of you know influence on on uh, artists that would follow. Absolutely. I mean, the, a lot of his biggest songs kind of began to come from this period. And speaking of some of his biggest work, kind of his biggest duet collaborator and partner was the uh, singer Tammy Terrell, right. who he began to collaborate with in 1966 slash 1967. They began to release some singles, which turned into a couple albums of collaborations. And Tammy would also actually kind of go on tour with Marvin. And Marvin talks about how once he started bringing Tammy on tour, that kind of really opened him up to like what kind of performances they could bring and the kind of energy that the crowd would feed off between them. And I don't think they were ever really romantic. Like they had a very close relationship, but Mm -hmm. it was they just had a very great understanding musically of each other and kind of brought the best out of each other musically and obviously had a had great success together because I'm going to play here just a snippet. I mean, I'm sure you guys know this this song Ain't No Mountain High Enough, one of the probably most successful soul tracks of all time. Uh, but that song was just a massive hit for both artists and one of the biggest kind of breakthrough R&B tracks to start having massive crossover appeal into the pop charts and things like that. So here's Ain't No Mountain High Enough, which really solidified the musical relationship that Marvin and Tammy would have for the next few years. So here's Ain't No Mountain High Enough from the 1967 album United. There's no doubt that Marvin and Tammy sounded great together. And, and as you said, Blake, they did a whole bunch of duets for a couple of years, and uh, a lot of which were composed by Ashford and Simpson. So, yep. I mean, they they had, they had were getting great material. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And they just kind of had a, had a great system going on. And kind of at the same time, around these duet albums, Marvin actually ended up having his other kind of his, one of his biggest solo hits of all time, the... Fantastic. I heard it through the grapevine, which would also become his first. And I don't know if it's his only solo number one song, but it was definitely his first solo number one song on the Billboard charts. So here from the 1968 album In the Groove is I Heard It Through the Grapevine, one of Marvin's biggest solo songs and certainly his biggest hit into of his, of his career up until that point. So here's I Heard It Through the Grapevine.
Yeah, I heard it through the grapevine. It's just one of those timeless, quintessential Marvin Gaye songs. Obviously, a huge hit. Sold over 4 million copies in 1968. Yeah, absolutely one of the biggest hits of the later half of the 60s. But sort of around this time, a little bit of like kind of tragedy struck his career as well because sort of just as he was starting starting to get his his flow going with Tammy, she actually ended up having some kind of career derailing health issues. And she actually, unfortunately, collapsed during a concert with Marvin mm-hmm. in 1967. And it was kind of later discovered that she had a, a brain tumor that would unfortunately ultimately prove fatal in 1970. But for the next three years from 1967 to 1970, Marvin and Tammy would continue to record two more fantastic duet albums. And I'm going to play just a little bit of uh, the one of their last big hits together, You're All I Need to Get By from the 1968 album, You're All I Need, which came out very shortly around the time of, of Grapevine. So he was having a lot of material releasing very, very quickly in these in these late 60s kind of years. But his his relationship with Tammy was one of the things that really brought him out musically and kind of helped him find his own so it was it was a big big thing for him when she started to kind of fail her health and he wanted to be there for her so he was as available as he could be to kind of get into the studio whenever she was feeling well enough for it and they were able to make a bunch of credible songs so here is you're all i need to get by from the 1968 album you're all i need but this this relationship they had musically was kind of one of the cornerstones of Marvin's career for sure. Well, it's a lot of fun to focus on that duet. They sounded great. Um, Obviously, a really impactful time for Marvin when Tammy passed away in 1970. Definitely. You know, definite period of um, depression for him. Definitely. He actually, like, kind of took a few months off of his music career and kind of just went into a little bit of a a pretty dark, dark place. Um, But he was kind of inspired musically to kind of get out of that funk by just like a lot of the kind of changing political landscape at kind of the mm-hmm. turn of the decade and into the early 70s. And um, with the was, anti-war rallies. Well, yeah, with and, the anti-war rallies around the Vietnam yeah. War and the um, civil rights movement that was kind of really gaining steam around that same time. Yeah. Um, but Marvin was also at the point where he had had some career success. So he was able to kind of get his way a little bit more creatively. And he actually kind of uh, wrote the uh, demo of what would become one of his kind of most iconic songs. What's going on with the, um, with one of the members of the four tops, one of his kind of early influences in the doo-wop scene and who had kind of become 
a another kind of big Motown artist at the time and kind of one of the one of Marvin's kind of musical peers at this point, even if it had started as an influence. So he wrote the song with, with one of the members of the Floor Tops and kind of presented it to Barry Gordy. And Barry wasn't super into the song. He didn't really want Motown artists to go political. He mm-hmm. thought that would be bad for sales and everything. But Marvin was so intent on putting this song out and a few other people around the record label were kind of able to convince Barry that, oh, this song is important for the times and important for Marvin. And he's kind of, we want to kind of keep him happy and everything like that. So he was able to eventually convince the the label to release what's going on. in I think the ending, ending months of 1970. So here I'm going to play the title track. What's going on here? Just real quick. And this song definitely marks a big shift in Marvin's songwriting and just like his, creative control of the album because after the single what's going on was released to great success and great critical acclaim marvin was kind of able to go back to the label and be like hey i want creative control on my stuff going forward and he was able to really step out as a songwriter and he has a co-writing credit or the sole writing credit on every song on what's going on Mm -hmm. so he really was kind of stepping into his own right and saying what he wanted to say So here is the title track, What's Going On, from the 1971 iconic album, What's Going On, by Marvin Gaye. You know we've got to find our way To bring some love and get here today Picket lights and picket signs Don't punish me with brutality Talk to me so you can see Yeah, well, that song hit number two in the U.S., number one on the R&B charts. And, uh, you know, really uh, impactful, sold over two million copies, I believe. And, uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, really the the right song for the times. Absolutely. And I mean, the whole album is is very political and but not only just about race relations in the Vietnam War and everything like the song we opened the podcast with Mercy, Mercy Me is actually a song about kind of ecological rights and things like that. And like the lyrics are talking about radiation and and oil and everything getting into the mercury and the mercury. Yeah. Mercury and the fish and, and killing, killing the plants and animals of everything. So it was a very ahead of its time on kind of every, every level politically and, and socially just one of the most kind of poignant albums probably ever. And that album, the success of that album kind of really gave Marvin the, the the chance and the abilities to kind of just do what he wanted for a while with his career. Like he was able to then get into some soundtrack work with the, the Trouble Man soundtrack, which ended up being a pretty iconic soundtrack just in and of itself. I'll play a quick snippet of the Trouble Man title track of the, the, the film and the movie. So here is the Trouble Man title track from 1972 but i'm just going to play a quick snippet just to kind of give you an example of where marvin was kind of able to take his 
creative freedom now that he had the the ability to go wherever he wanted to creatively. So here is a quick snippet of Trouble Man from the 1972 soundtrack album. So great, great soundtrack song. After this period of his career, like I'm going to play one more song here real quick from his 1973 album, Let's Get It On. But he worked really hard in the 60s and was putting out multiple albums a lot of times in in one year, especially with his duet albums and things like that. And so he, for a lot of the 70s, he really slowed down, like he released the album Let's get it on in in 73 and then another kind of duet project actually with Diana Ross of the Supremes. Mm -hmm. But after that, he really only released two more albums throughout the rest of the 70s, one in 76 and one in 78. But here, just real quick, I'm going I am going to play Let's Get It On from 1973. One of his last major hits from the 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 his kind of this mid period in the 70s. Here it is just for a split second from 1973, the title track. Let's get it on from the same album of the same name. Well, that would become his second number one song and uh, really propelled Marvin into uh, some major touring, actually. Uh, just a few months later, he kicked off a tour in Oakland and uh, huge success. He was making about $100,000 per performance back then. That's that's about 500, about a half a million dollars a night in yep. today's money. Uh, far cry from the $5 a week he was making about 10 years earlier. Yep. The expanse into his live and touring kind of took a lot of the time in the 70s, and that's one of the reasons he had kind of a slowed down recording output from for the rest of the 70s, kind of after Let's Get It On and his collaborative album with Diana. But into the 80s and into the, the period of the last kind of few years of the 70s, he's really started getting into a lot of the sounds of like a lot of the more modern at the time funk like taking some influence from stevie wonder's later output who was actually a big influence of of marvin but stevie wonder and parliament funkadelic and a lot of that music kind of drove marvin sonically a little bit more into the future where he was using a lot of synthesizers and early drum machines on a lot of his his music into the into the early 80s and actually his one of his biggest successes after his kind of big 
period in the 70s is his 1982 album Midnight Love, which heavily features the TR-808 drum machine for pretty much a lot of the whole percussion of the album. And that drum machine would kind of then go on to become one of, if not the most iconic instrument in probably all of hip-hop and a lot of electronic music. The 808 is kind of synonymous with the, with the hip-hop and rap genres. So this album, Midnight Love from 1982, is one of the first major appearances of that instrument, that drum machine, on any kind of major artist's work. So here is probably one of his biggest kind of solo hits well as well, Sexual Healing, from the Midnight Love album. So here's just a snippet of that, which opens with a big, big beat from that 808 drum machine, that TR-808. So here is Sexual Healing by Marvin Gaye from 1982. That song peaked at number three in the U.S. Uh, and a little known fact, maybe it was uh, the biggest R&B song in the entire decade of the 80s. Wow. And got him a Grammy. Actually, I think two Grammys on that song. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's a fantastic song and album. And unfortunately, it sort of was Marvin's last big career hoorah because unfortunately he was shortly... Less than two years after the release of that album, he was unfortunately uh, gunned down by his dad in kind of an argument. I think he got kind of in between his dad and his mom were having kind of a argument turned maybe violent. And unfortunately, Marvin did not survive. Um, and his dad was given, I think, six or seven years of kind of parole. And I think I think there was like... Um... Uh, don't quote me on this, but I, I think his father had some sort of brain tumor at the time, yeah, which helped him sense. not serve time. That makes but sense. Marvin literally stepped between a conflict between his mother and father and yep. his father shot him in the heart. Yep. And uh, he was, it was the day before his 45th birthday. Tragic into one of the most iconic soul careers of all time. And one of the best kind of R and B and soul artists to ever really do it, yep. which is so unfortunate, but his influence definitely lives on. He's he's probably one of the most influential artists across the the music industry. If you count some of the people that he influenced, like Stevie Wonder and some of the no some doubt. of those artists like that. But one of the kind of genres that he really helped kind of bring to fruition was this kind of soft R and B that he really highlighted on that Midnight Love and Sexual Healing album and songs, but. 
that kind of that kind of genre it was i think kind of called quiet storm mm-hmm. at the time was really like one of the pivotal ways that r&b survived into the 80s and 90s as a as a genre championed by some artists like Sade here which will play the song is it a crime from 1985 here in just a second but Sade definitely talks about Marvin Gaye being one of the biggest influence on her and the whole band's kind of musical careers and one of the artists he was kind of one of the artists that the group kind of all could agree that they liked because they all had very disparate music tastes but Marvin Gaye was one of their one of the things that brought them together musically so here's is it a crime from the 1985 album promise by the British band Sade Yeah, and our listeners can take a little uh, tour through Sade's career on our previous podcast. But I just thinking about Marvin Gaye, dozens and dozens of influences over the years. I'm just going to mention a few. I know you're going to touch on some here, but Nora Jones, um, Seal, uh, Simply Red. I mean, just the list goes on and on. And and uh, I know you're going to get into a couple here, Blake, but he just really influenced so much music over the years. Absolutely. And I mean, he's one of the most influential R&B artists of all time, for sure. And here I'm going to play a couple more modern artists that he's influenced, starting with with John Legend, who is kind of one of the probably biggest R&B singers and pianists, sort of similar to to Marvin to Marvin it was, but here's here's Ordinary People from the 2005 album from John Legend, Get Lifted. So here's Ordinary People, one of the songs and artists I feel like most modern people would attribute to a, a, a Marvin Gaye influence. Yeah, definite influence from Marvin Gaye. Absolutely. I mean, you can definitely, even the lyrics sound like something that could have happened or could have been Marvin Gaye lyrics and sort of his mm-hmm. let's get it on or mid-70s kind of period. And that that is definitely something that John Legend has taken a lot from from artists like Marvin Gaye and 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 people, other other artists like that. But one of the probably most modern big 
places that a lot of Marvin Gaye influence kind of oozes out from is actually probably the work of Bruno Mars and Anderson Pock's newest kind of band, Silk Sonic, who last year in 2021 had a number one hit with this song, Leave the Door Open, which really sounds like something straight out of the mid-70s off of one of Marvin's kind of classic albums. So here is Leave the Door Open from An Evening with Silk Sonic from 2021 by Bruno Mars and Anderson Pock as their band Silk Sonic, featuring Bootsy Collins kind of as their MC for this album. But here is Leave the Door Open. Super cool and a nice call on linking that back to a Marvin Gaye influence. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely it's one of my favorite big pop songs recently. And it's pretty cool that an album or a song can still hit number one in the 2020s sounding exactly like that. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty fun way to kind of bring it back to Marvin's kind of perpetual influence over the the music industry. And he's definitely one of the best soul musicians to ever do it. And he's definitely revolutionary in the genre for bringing kind of a more heavy political messaging mm-hmm. to that genre of music. And definitely a lot of artists like Stevie Wonder and Curtis Mayfield followed him very, very intently after that. So just to close out the um, podcast, I am going to play the song Inner City Blues, the final track off What's Going On, which he actually co-wrote with James Nix, who is the, who was the... Um, janitor and elevator operator at Motown mm. who Marvin just struck up a friendship with and kind of used as a as a lyricist occasionally when he needed help writing lyrics so so this was kind of a big obviously a big deal for James Nix probably the biggest song he ever kind of helped co-write he was a co-writer on a few other kind of Motown and similar hits that are around the the mid 60s but this album is definitely the thing that kind of turned him into an actual professional songwriter. Mm. So here's Inner City Blues, Make Me Want to Holler from What's Going On. And this has been Influence, so thank you so much. I'm Blake Sokoloff. I'm Robert Dean. And you can follow us on Instagram if you want to hear whenever new episodes are coming out right away or just to get some fun fun facts about your favorite musicians at influence.podcast uh, on Instagram. So. Find us there, and here's Inner City Blues from What's Going On from 1971 by the iconic Marvin Gaye.
Yeah. 